Father, um, I thank you that we get to come here each week to come and to see the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lamb, to gaze upon who you are as we preach the gospel to ourselves, as we look into your word and just discover more of who you are. Father, we thank you that um, we thank you for being the great God that you are, that you are a triune God, you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are the incomprehensible God, and yet you have stooped, you have condescended to give us your word, to reveal yourself to us, to enable us to comprehend at least a little bit about who you are, Lord, and we thank you that there is so much more to, to know about you, to revel in, um, that we have all of eternity to look forward to, to come to know you more and more, to worship you more and more fully, and to just spend eternity dwelling in your presence, Lord, and with great joy. We thank you that that is our destiny as believers. And Lord, we come to your word this morning knowing um, that we are not yet who we ought to be, but we thank you that if we have turned from sin and have put our trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we are not who we used to be. And we pray that your spirit through your word would be at work in our hearts and our lives, transforming us, making us who you want us to be. Lord, there's no one who can change us for us. Um, we cannot change ourselves. There's no man who can change us. We need the Holy Spirit to come and to change us, Lord, to, to transform us as we gaze into your word together. So may you do that even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning, and we're looking at the first eight verses, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8, and I'll read that for us. Paul writes, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The discipline of a child is unpleasant both for the child and for his parent. 
It's unpleasant because there's a degree of pain involved, pain in the child's rump and pain in the parent's heart. So, seeing as how there's pain involved, why does the Bible command parents to lovingly discipline their children? Parents are commanded to discipline their child for that child's eternal good so that the child may understand that their creator will hold them accountable for their actions and that they need a savior to rescue them from their sin and from God's wrath. The parents, being God's delegated authority in that child's life, are responsible to remind that child that there are consequences for sin. And they are responsible to point their child to the salvation that is freely offered them in the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 12:11 says, "All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." So, children need discipline. And as Christians, even adult Christians, we are never without the need for discipline in our own lives. We all veer off into the weeds of sin at various times, and we all need the metaphorical rod of discipline to guide us back onto the straight and narrow path of following after Christ. And the Corinthians were in desperate need of this discipline. They had veered off the narrow road. That's why Paul, as a faithful spiritual father to them, ended chapter 4 by saying what he said in verse 21. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? In chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we're going to see why the rod, why discipline is an urgent need in the church. And in verses 6 through 8, we're going to see the foundational reason for why the rod, why discipline is needed in the church. Church discipline is not exactly a popular subject being preached from pulpits these days. So it's good for us to consider what the Bible has to say so that that we can arrive at a proper understanding of this thing called church discipline. So let's first look at the urgency of discipline, the urgency of it. We see it in verses 1 through 5. There is an urgency to church discipline. It's not something about which we can hold an attitude of indifference, just like we must not be indifferent when it comes to the, ch- the discipline of our own children. Nothing less than eternal souls are at stake. It's urgent. There's an urgent need for discipline. And Paul shows us that quite clearly in these first five verses. So look at verse 1. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So it's public knowledge that there is immorality among the Corinthians. And you can hear shock in Paul's voice. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you. And that word immorality is the Greek word pornea. It's a catch-all term for any kind of unlawful sexual relations between individuals. 
Paul has heard reports of sexual immorality taking place among the Corinthians. And it's not just any kind of sexual immorality. That would be bad enough. But it's a brand of sexual immorality that even the unbelieving Gentiles around them view as unacceptable. And that's really saying something because he's writing to Corinthians. Corinth was not exactly a city known for moral, righteous, upstanding behavior. But even the Corinthian unbelievers view this behavior as reprehensible. So that's, that's not good. <laughs> Paul is quite shocked. There's a professing believer in the congregation who is in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. The fact that Paul doesn't say this man's mother, he says father's wife, indicates that this is the man's stepmother. He has his father's wife. It's a level of immorality that the spiritually dead Gentiles have not even stooped down to. So Paul is shocked. And what is all the more shocking is that the Corinthians are aware of this man within their congregation, and yet they continue to be proud of themselves. They continue to say that we have arrived spiritually, that we are at the pinnacle of sanctification. Verse 2, Paul says, You have become arrogant, puffed up, and have not mourned instead. Wow, if this has not humbled the Corinthians, what will? If this is going on in their midst and they still think they are somebody, That is a level of self-deception that is incredibly concerning to Paul. Paul says that they ought to be devastated. They ought to be grieved. They ought to be mourning over this. Why should they be mourning? They should be mourning, grieving, because the congregation has lost its purity. Their witness to a watching world has been tarnished beyond all recognition. There's no way they can say, you sinning unbeliever, you need to come to Christ. He will make you um, holy. He will transform your life. All the while in their own congregation, they are living worse than the unbelievers are. They should mourn because this man is doing incredibly harmful behavior to himself and to the congregation. They should grieve because the holy name of Jesus is being dragged through the sewer of this man's sin. He says, you, are, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. If they were truly concerned about the glory of God, they would be mourning. And that mourning would be of such a kind that it would result in action. If you are truly zealous for the honor of God, and if you truly love the church, you will mourn when sin in the church robs God of his honor and harms Christ's church. And that mourning will always lead to action because you cannot bear for that stain to remain in your midst. You will seek to remove it. You would rather endure the pain of putting an individual out of the church than to endure the pain of seeing God blasphemed and seeing your brothers and your sisters harmed. 
And the fact that the Corinthians had not taken action to expel this man from their congregation showed that they were more zealous about their own honor than about God's honor. They were more concerned selfishly with themselves than being concerned for one another. Otherwise, they would have done something about this. They are blinded by their pride. But Paul, Paul has not been blinded by pride. Nothing is more precious to Paul than the honor of Christ and the good of Christ's people. So he will act. He who is absent when they who are present would not act, Paul who is absent will act. Verse 3, he says, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Even though Paul is not there physically, he is there spiritually. Though he's been physically disconnected from the Corinthians by distance, he has not been disconnected from them in spirit. The same Holy Spirit who resides in the Corinthians also resides in Paul. And Paul and these Corinthian believers, they've both been baptized into the same body of Christ. So he's there with them in spirit through the Holy Spirit. And as such, Paul has been as wounded by this behavior as he would have been if if he had actually been in their midst watching it going on. He's just as wounded even though he's separated by many miles from them. So Paul has acted. He has passed judgment upon this man who has committed this immorality. Paul has determined that this man must be disfellowshipped. He must be removed from the congregation. But notice verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that Paul is not making this judgment on his own, unilaterally. He's not being a lone ranger just making this happen. He says, verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one. My translation in verse 5 begins with the words, I have decided. Um, but those words, aren't, those words are not actually in the text. It's simply, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, deliver such a one. Most translations have it as a command at the beginning of verse 5, deliver such a one. So the emphasis is not on Paul individually making this happen. He is saying, listen, we all, in the name of the Lord, when I am with you in your assembly, when I am with you in spirit, this is what we are going to do. We are going to deliver this man. We, not I, we. Paul is not acting on his own authority but he is acting in the name of and with the power of the Lord Jesus. And he's not acting individually, but in concert with the whole Corinthian congregation. In verse 4, he says, When you are assembled and I with you in spirit, we are going to do this. Paul is saying that they need 
to remove this man together, and that it is the Lord Jesus himself who is authorizing them to do this and empowering them to do this. Now, why is Paul taking such pains to explain it in this manner? Why is he emphasizing that it's not his authority, it's Christ's authority? He's not doing it alone. They all have to do it together. Why is he saying it that way? Well, it's because that is how the Lord Jesus commanded for church discipline to be carried out. It's not a one-man thing. It's a church-wide thing. If you turn to Matthew 18, you'll see this. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Matthew 18, verse 15. And you'll see in this passage that there's actually stages to church discipline. And when we're in 1 Corinthians 5, we're seeing the end stage, the last stage. It's reached this point. This man is at the level to where this last step needs to happen now. But there's steps that lead up to that. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been bound or shall have been loosed in heaven. Take note of verse 18. When a church body is faithfully upholding the standards of Christ, and as a church body they decide in accordance with the word of God to put an individual out of the church. That is a decision that has already been made in heaven. The church is not making that decision on their own authority. They are simply making a decision that is in keeping with a decision that has already been made by God that this individual needs to be placed outside of the assembly. He goes on in verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask. It shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. How many people does it take to form a church? According to verses 19 and 20. Anybody? Two or three. And so it doesn't matter how small the church is or how big the church is, the authority is the same because it comes from Jesus. The authority is not resting within the church body. It's Christ's authority that is being exercised by the church in putting someone out. So that's why Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 5, in the name of the Lord Jesus, with the power of the Lord Jesus, we are going to deliver this man. We, as a church, are going to deliver this man up. Excommunication, that's the big word for it. It's the expulsion of a member of the church from Christian fellowship. And the excommunication is always to be done with the participation of the whole 
congregation. And yes, it's a process that will naturally be guided by the leadership of the church, but everyone needs to be involved for it to have its intended effect on that, that individual and on the church. Now, what is the intended effect? What is the intended result and purpose of Paul and the Corinthians putting this man out? What does he say in verse 5? Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What is Paul saying here? Well, to help us, I, I want to read to you Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. There, Paul describes our salvation, what happens when we're saved. He says, For God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The church belongs to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So if you, as a professing believer, if you pursue sin and you refuse to repent, even when the whole church is calling you to repent, the church is commanded by Christ to put you out of the church. And when you are put out of the church, which is in the kingdom of Christ, when you're put out of the church, what are you put into? You're put back into the domain of darkness, where the God of this world, Satan, rules. That is what Paul appears to mean when he says, deliver this man to Satan. It's not that Satan is wanting to help sanctify this person. It's that Satan has a dominion of his own, and this man in being removed from the church is being put into that dominion where Satan rules. He's being thrust back into Satan's jurisdiction, and Paul says that this ought to result in the destruction of the flesh. Paul wants this individual to experience once again the harsh reality of what it is like to live apart from the blessings of Christ in this world. Because sometimes you don't know what you have until it's taken away from you. And so Paul wants this man to experience what it's like to not be under the blessing of Christ. He wants him back out into the world and see, do you remember what you were saved from? This sin that you're pursuing can never fulfill you the way that Christ can. And he wants him to come to grips with that reality and to be taken out of the church. But he also wants the church to be pure. That's why this man needs to be removed. This is what Paul did with another couple of unrepenting, professing believers. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul writes this to Timothy, verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That's what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 5. If this man 
who is being disfellowshipped, if he is really a believer, and he's just not acting like a believer, if he's really a believer and this happens to him, he will not be able to bear being apart from the body of Christ. He will be like the younger brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Remember that parable, how the, the, that younger brother, that younger son, he went into a far-off country where he spent his father's inheritance with loose living. And it was only when outside of the house, in this far country, poor and destitute, it was only when he was starving in the fields, longing to feed himself with what the pigs were eating, that he finally came to his senses and wanted to come back home. And that is what Paul intends to happen with this man who is being removed from fellowship. He wants this man to come to his senses and and want to come back home. The painful reality of being outside of his heavenly father's household, if he's a believer, it will cause him to willingly die to his fleshly lusts, repent and run back home to the father. That is always the goal of church discipline. It's to restore an unrepentant sinning believer to restore him to a walk of repentant faith by destroying his fleshly lusts so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Church discipline is a tool to help us persevere in our faith. Now before moving on to verses 6 through 8, I just want you to notice one more thing about these first five verses. Paul you'll notice, is not addressing the man himself who has his father's wife. Who is he addressing? He's addressing the church. Paul is concerning himself with the whole church. His righteous indignation is directed at the church. He's rebuking the church for their toleration of sin. To refuse to practice church discipline is sin itself. They are not loving God well, they're not loving each other well, and they're certainly not loving this man well by turning a blind eye to his sin. And the application here is, what about you and me? Do we turn a blind eye to each other's sin? Because remember, excommunication, that's supposed to be the last resort, the last stage of church discipline. Church discipline should be happening all the time at those earlier stages. When you see someone become ensnared by sin, a sin that you know could quickly dominate this person's life, and you humbly go to them, having removed the log from your own eye first, humbly go to them, speak with them privately, and seek to help them turn from this sin. I wonder if anyone had done that for this man in Corinth. My guess would be nobody did. How much pain would they have been spared if someone had been faithful to do that for this man? We need to be willing to have those kinds of difficult conversations with one another in love. That's why I'm thankful for my wife. You know, she's always there. And she does church discipline on me when she sees me sinning. I'm thankful. She's the one, she's the first line of defense for me 
when I stray off the road into the weeds of sin. She's there to help me get back to following after Christ. We need to be each, each other's first line of defense if we love each other. So that is the urgency of discipline. It's important. We need to be doing this for each other if we love God and if we love each other. So that's the urgency of discipline. But now we come to verses 6 through 8 where we find the reason for discipline. The reason for discipline. We still need to know more about why church discipline is an urgent need in the church. And here we find it. Verses 6 through 8. Paul gives us the theological grounding for the necessity of church discipline. He he says this in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. That seems pretty obvious by now. Their tolerance of this immoral man in their very midst is a demonstration of the fact that their boasting is not bearing good fruit because they're not boasting in God. They're boasting in themselves. And this is the result. Evil has multiplied in their midst through their boasting in themselves. And so Paul asks them a question. And remember, the Corinthians are know-it-alls. They are proud of their knowledge. And so Paul asks them a question that is like nails on a chalkboard to a know-it-all. He says, do you not know? Do you not know? He asks, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Well, first of all, what is leaven? In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Gordon Fee says this of the process of leavening bread. So leaven is different from yeast. He says this, quote, about the process of leavening bread, quote, it consisted of keeping back a little portion of last week's dough, allowing it to ferment, then adding it to this week's dough, which in turn was thoroughly fermented to give it lightness. So you would take a little bit of last week's dough that had begun to ferment, and you would stick it in the new lump, and that little piece of dough would ferment the whole lump so that when baked, it would rise like sourdough. And this this nature of leaven to spread throughout the lump that it's added to is why so often Scripture uses leaven as a metaphor for sin. Because sin is like a bad apple. It spreads. It doesn't stay in one place. It's like gain green. And so Paul is saying, don't you know that this sin will not stop with this man? Just as leaven gets spread throughout the whole lump of dough, so sin will emanate from this man and it will contaminate the whole body, the whole lump. And in light of that reality, Paul exhorts them in verse 7. He says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Here, Paul compares the church to a house that needs to be swept clean of the presence of all leaven. Anybody know where Paul gets this imagery from? Any thoughts? Yes, the Passover. Paul gets this imagery 
from the Old Testament law surrounding the celebration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It hearkens all the way back to the Exodus. Remember the Exodus when God sent ten plagues upon Egypt in order to set his people, the Israelites, free from bondage? Well, the tenth and final plague that God sent upon the nation of Egypt was the plague of the death of the firstborn. God sent a destroying angel to put to death every firstborn child in the land of Egypt. And in order for the Israelites to escape experiencing this plague themselves, God directed them to slaughter a lamb, which they would then eat, and they would wipe its blood upon the lintel and doorposts of the house that they were eating in. And when the destroying angel came by and it saw the blood of the lamb wiped upon the doorposts of that house, the destroying angel who was meeting out the wrath of God would pass over that house, leaving the people inside unharmed. So this plague happened. And when it happened, Pharaoh and all the people of Egypt, finally they were in a great hurry to get the people out because they saw that eventually none of them were going to survive if they kept hanging on to the Israelites. And so they were urging the Israelites to get out quickly. And so the Israelites were making haste to get out of Egypt. And they were moving so quickly that they had to prepare their provisions in such a way that they did not have time to carry out the process of leavening their bread to make it rise. So it was just like crackers that they were bringing along, not unleavened bread. And so God instituted the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that they would they would be conjoined with Passover every year, and they were to celebrate that feast every year to be an annual reminder of the great deliverance that God had accomplished for them. Um, if you would, turn back to Exodus chapter 12. I just want to read to you some of the instructions from God about how to celebrate that feast of unleavened bread. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 14. In verses 1 through 13, he's, God has already given them instructions about the Passover lamb. Now verse 14. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So there were serious consequences of eating with leaven during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now uh, drop down to verse 19. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. So that's where Paul gets this imagery that he's speaking of back in 1 Corinthians 5. He says in verse 7, clean out the old leaven, that is, purge sin out of the church, 
so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Notice there that the basis for Paul's command to clean out the old leaven is that they are already unleavened. He's calling them to become in practice what they already are in Christ. And the reason that they are already an unleavened people is because Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Jesus, we're not, most of us are not Jews, we're Gentiles, and yet God has provided a Passover for us. Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you, if you are a believer this morning, the moment you turn from your sin and you place your trust in Jesus alone to save you and to rule you, the moment you did that, that was you wiping his blood upon the lintel and the doorposts of your soul. And the moment you did that, God's wrath passed over you because the lamb that was slain absorbed that wrath upon himself, the Lord Jesus. Through Christ's sacrifice, you, through faith, have been reconciled to God and you've been made a new creature in Christ. Jesus, your Passover lamb, has set you free from the leaven of sin. He has set you free from the enslaving power and penalty of sin. And so Paul is saying to these believers and to us, now act like it. Act like it. I want to read from Romans chapter 6, where Paul says much the same thing. This is who you are in Christ. If you've put your trust in him, now act like it. Because if you don't act like it, you are saying that you are actually not really in Christ. Because if you were, this is how you would be acting. So act like it. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through, baptize, or through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was, notice the past tense, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin 
as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. He's saying, this is who you are. Act like it. The Corinthians had stopped striving to become who they already were in Christ. Verse 8, back in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, celebrate the feast. Our new life in Christ is intended by God to be a continuous, ongoing celebration of the truth to which Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread pointed forward to, that God sent his son, Jesus, to pay for our sins by dying on the cross in our place so that we could be delivered from the wrath of God and from sin's enslaving power. And just as the Israelites could not celebrate Passover by eating leavened bread, so Christians cannot celebrate Christ by persisting in willful sin or by tolerating the presence of persistent willful sin in the church. We cannot celebrate what Christ has done in that manner. Why not? Because willful sin makes a mockery of the cross. It's not celebrating the cross, it's making a mockery of the cross. To willingly pursue sin and still call yourself a Christian is to say, thank you, Lord, for saving me from my sin by shedding your precious blood. Now excuse me while I continue to chase after the very thing from which you died to save me, to set me free. Paul is telling us that has no place in the church. Such an attitude is not repentant faith. It is arrogant boasting. And no arrogant boaster has a place in the coming kingdom of Christ. So don't celebrate your new life in Christ with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. A true Christian is not a perfect Christian, not a sinless Christian. A true Christian is a sincere Christian, a truthful Christian. When you say to the Lord, Lord, I want to be free from the enslaving power of my sin, are you being sincere when you say that to the Lord? Or are in the back of your mind you're saying, except for this sin, I want to hang on to that one. That's not sincerity. When you ask the Lord to save you from your sin, from the wrath of God, are you being honest? If you are being honest, Jesus will hear you. And by his spirit, he will enable you to keep fighting against sin until the day you die when he will bring you to himself and you will never again experience the pull of sin on your life. Jesus died to save you from the wrath of God and to deliver you from having to slavishly say yes to sin. 
In Christ, you can fight. You can say no to sin and yes to God more and more. So you see here in this passage, it helps us to understand that church discipline is not some curmudgeonly thing that the church does in order to scare people or make them miserable. No, church discipline is for our good. It is for our eternal joy in Christ. Church discipline is what God uses to enable us to fully celebrate what he has done for us in his son. Sin is the kill joy. Sin is what kills joy. There is nothing more joyous for a Christian than to live a life that glorifies his Savior. And church discipline is simply us as a church helping one another to experience that joy to the fullest so that Christ will receive the honor that he is due in his church. So I hope that helps us understand this thing that can seem so scary in our minds. It's for our good. It's for our joy. And it is to be done in love and a desire to protect one another and to see one another rejoicing to the full in Christ. So let's not be afraid of it. Let's embrace it.